This week on God's Favor, here's a sobering reality. Even when you are enjoying God's favor on your life, you can still be struggling with life's challenges. But here's the good news. God can help you with those too. Welcome to Chapter 7 of God's Favor by Gary Wilkerson. Gary is the president of World Challenge and the host of the Gary Wilkerson podcast. You can find his latest program on our website, worldchallenge.org. World Challenge exists to transform lives through the message and mission of Jesus Christ. Each week, this podcast reaches thousands of listeners with biblical encouragement and thoughtful commentary. This critical work is made possible by the generous contributions of individuals like you. Please consider joining our donors who believe in World Challenge's mission. You can do that on our website, worldchallenge.org. And now, here's Chapter 7, Overwhelming Victory, read by Jason Staples. Hopefully, you're starting to recognize the upgrades God has given you over your lifetime. As you tally them up, you can see a pattern of His faithfulness to you. You're encouraged, and the faith He restores in you makes you raise your sights and expectation to see more of His goodness. I want to encourage you in that expectant hope, especially as the challenges of life continue to come. That's an important thing to remind you of as you start to enjoy God's upgrades. Life's challenges never stop coming. I'm always careful to caution Christians about this, especially in times of blessing. Maybe you've heard the joke about the guy who unwittingly drove the wrong way on the freeway. His mistake wreaked havoc, making drivers do wild things to avoid hitting him. His wife saw a news flash about what was happening, and she decided to call her husband to warn him. Be careful. There's an idiot on the road, she said. I can't talk now, her husband answered. There are thousands of idiots on the road. Sometimes the driver who sees multiple vehicles flying at him is the one doing the bad driving. We take a wrong turn on a freeway ramp and suddenly trials careen at us with breakneck speed. It takes every ounce of our energy just to avoid disaster. I'm talking about crises anybody might face. Mounting bills, broken relationships, job loss, alienated relatives. All of these crises challenge our faith. And when they mount too high for us to handle... Our trust in God's wonderful favor can take an unwanted detour. Sometimes doubts build up in us because we know life wasn't always this challenging. We may have enjoyed a long season of life when God's hand was clearly on us. Our prayers were answered with merciful grace, and we saw His goodness at work everywhere. Then suddenly, everything was thrown into upheaval. Stuff came at us like speeding cars, and we jerked the steering wheel back and forth just to avoid crashing. Now life has continued that way for an extended time, and doubts about God's care have taken root. So we've started to question the reality of His promises. I have a name for this season in life. I call it the Friday-Saturday setback. I'm referring to the two days before Jesus' resurrection. For God's people... That Friday and Saturday seemed like the darkest stretch of their lives. And maybe all of history, everything up to that moment had pointed to the fulfillment of God's kingdom on earth. In three years' time, Jesus performed miracles of healing and provision, showing compassion to people and giving them hope. He even resurrected a man who'd been dead for three days. For anyone in Israel who loved God, things could not have looked more promising. Jesus' disciples had a front-row seat for it all. They even took part in the miracles he performed, feeding thousands with just a few bread loaves and fish. 
Those twelve men were the master's closest friends and followers, and they had given up their lives to walk with him. It was a mountaintop period for anyone who wanted his life to count for God. Then came the Friday after Passover, and Jesus was arrested in the Garden of Gethsemane. From there, things happened so fast the disciples couldn't catch their breath. They saw Jesus beaten, maligned, spat upon, and scourged. They saw him led to court on trumped-up charges and judged by evil men. I'm sure the disciples prayed the whole time that God would step in and deliver Jesus, but it didn't happen. To their horror, they watched as their master was crucified, suffering a tortuous death alongside convicted criminals. They saw his lifeless body carted away and sealed inside a tomb. End of story. What began as a life with eternal promise, one meant to fulfill God's word, couldn't have ended more dismally. It was a setback the disciples couldn't recover from. Think about what that Friday and Saturday must have been like for the disciples. Those two days were filled with fear and confusion as the terrifying events came nonstop. The disciples were stunned by it all. A familiar scene from Luke 24, 13-21 sums up their state of mind. That day, two of Jesus' followers were walking to the village of Emmaus, seven miles from Jerusalem. As they walked along, they were talking about everything that had happened. As they talked and discussed these things, Jesus himself suddenly came and began walking with them. But God kept them from recognizing him. He asked them, What are you discussing so intently as you walk along? They stopped short, sadness written across their faces. Then one of them, Cleopas, replied, You must be the only person in Jerusalem who hasn't heard about all the things that have happened there the last few days. What things? Jesus asked. The things that happened to Jesus, the man from Nazareth, they said. He was a prophet who did powerful miracles, and he was a mighty teacher in the eyes of God and all the people. But our leading priests and other religious leaders handed him over to be condemned to death, and they crucified him. We had hoped he was the Messiah who had come to rescue Israel. You can sense the despair dripping from their words. One phrase leaps out. We had hoped. Revealing their hope was past tense. It was dawning on them that their dreams wouldn't come to pass after all. Unbelief crept in. I know a lot of Christians who can identify with this. They wondered if God would ever answer their prayers. But things always seemed to get worse instead of better. Now, as they confront more oncoming trials, their hope in God's promises falls by the wayside. Like the men on the road to Emmaus, they tell themselves, At one time Jesus worked miracles in my life, but now he seems absent completely. I don't see any reality of God. Why should I keep believing? It's crucial not to make negative or disbelieving decisions during our Friday-Saturday setback. There's an instructive story in 2 Kings 5 about a man named Naaman. He was a great warrior, a top general in an army that was at war with Israel. But Naaman suffered from leprosy and his condition was worsening. One of the servants tending to Naaman was a captured Israelite woman. Even though she knew him as an enemy soldier, she was heartbroken to see Naaman approaching death. She remembered the miracles God worked in Israel through the prophet Elisha. 
So she told Naaman and his family, There's a prophet in Israel who can help you. This was great news to Naaman's ears, and hearing it brought a surge of hope to his spirit. He had been convinced he was as good as dead, but now he had a chance. He got excited as he thought about being restored to life. Also encouraged was the king he served. With hope for his top general, the monarch instructed Naaman to go to Elisha, loading his entourage with 750 pounds of silver, 150 pounds of gold, and 10 sets of clothes to serve as a gift to the prophet. It was offered in gratitude for any healing Elisha could provide. Naaman's spirits surely soared at this gesture. He must have thought, God seemed to speak through the young maid. That gave me hope. And now I have the king's backing with these gifts of wealth. It all seems like a confirmation of something good to come. Certainly, Elisha will heal me. My life will be given back to me. When Naaman arrived and met Elisha, this indeed seemed to be the case. The prophet told the general that yes, he would be healed. But first, he instructed Naaman to go to the Jordan River and dip himself in the water seven times. I can picture Naaman being a bit puzzled by this. If Elisha could heal him, why didn't he just wave his hand and pronounce him restored? Besides, the Jordan River looked sort of dirty, like it was the last place someone would find healing. How could those swirling brown waters cleanse anyone of leprosy? Yet Naaman did as he was instructed. He went down to the river and dipped his leprous body into the water. Nothing happened. So he dipped again, and then a third time. No result. Now Naaman must have started to doubt. Why was this not working? If the water was going to heal him, why would it have to take four more times? He dipped again. A fourth time, then a fifth. Then he held up his arms to examine them. Nothing. Not even the tiniest change. I wonder whether Naaman began to feel a dread in his gut. He had only two more chances to be healed, and so far there was no sign of change. Not even a glimmer. He might have wondered why he had gotten his hopes up in the first place. He probably thought that was worse than if he had simply made peace with death. He drew a breath and dipped for the sixth time. Nothing. Here is where I imagine every crushing doubt rushing into Naaman's mind like a flood. First, the empty promise of the maid. Then the foolish, blind belief of the king. Now, the deception of the prophet. Naaman's heart might have turned completely dark at the cruelty of it all. Instead, he dipped a seventh time. And the Bible says that as he emerged from the water, Naaman's skin was like a baby's. None of the deadly leprosy remained. Instead, Naaman had a brand new, healthy body. Despite every outward sign he wouldn't be healed, Naaman's hope never died. I believe God wants to speak this same hope into us. No matter what our trial, standing in hope for our children, for our finances, for our unsaved loved ones, He stands alongside us, sustaining us with the hope of a gospel that heals completely. Paul poses a crucial question to anyone whose faith diminishes through their trials. Once again, I refer you to the great faith-sustaining truth found in Romans 8.28. We know that God causes everything to work together for the good of those who love God and are called according to His purpose for them. 
This amazing truth has brought hope to tens of millions. Yet the context of this passage is even more amazing. Paul had just been writing about life in the Spirit. He says the Spirit life we have in Christ determines how we view every event that we experience. No matter how many trials come at us, we can know God is at work shaping every part of them for our good. Then Paul adds this amazing statement. If God is for us, who can ever be against us? Since he did not spare even his own son, but gave him up for us all, won't he also give us everything else? In this amazing chapter, Paul is building for us a bedrock truth that he wants every Christian to know. Can't you see how easy it is for God to give you everything you need? He already gave you the hardest thing of all, his own son, to die on the cross. Why would he withhold anything less? What a powerful truth. God held back nothing to provide our freedom from all bondage, including his precious son. Now the same power that raised Jesus from the dead resides in us, raising us to newness of life. God is saying, I didn't hold back my son from you, and I won't withhold the power you need to overcome your crisis. Still, many of us have trouble grasping this. We can be tempted to think that God blesses only a certain type of Christian, mainly those whose faith seems greater than ours. We don't realize this belief makes us more vulnerable to Satan's accusations. You aren't doing anything right. Your walk isn't good enough. Why else would this be happening to you and not to others? Such lies are meant to color our view of God's goodness and grace, and they're followed by other lies. Nothing good is ever going to happen to you again. Why did you ever think you'd have God's favor? That was just a false promise you made to yourself. You've been a Christian long enough to realize you deserve what you're getting. Paul steps in to give us weapons against these accusations. He provides a list of the amazing things our merciful Father does for us. Note how many times the phrase for us appears in Romans 8:33 and 34. Who dares accuse us whom God has chosen for his own? No one, for God himself has given us right standing with himself. Who then will condemn us? No one, for Christ Jesus died for us and was raised to life for us. And he is sitting in the place of honor at God's right hand, pleading for us. Finally, Paul offers assuring words to everyone who suffers. Can anything ever separate us from Christ's love? Does it mean he no longer loves us if we have trouble or calamity or are persecuted or hungry or destitute or in danger or threatened with death? As the scriptures say, for your sake, we are killed every day. We are being slaughtered like sheep. No, despite all these things, overwhelming victory is ours through Christ who loved us. Overwhelming victory in the midst of our crises. What a gift for us. Christ's overwhelming victory dwells in everyone who's convinced of his love despite their suffering. As Paul explains in verse 38, I am convinced that nothing can ever separate us from God's love. Neither death 
nor life, nor angels, nor demons, neither our fears for today, nor our worries about tomorrow, not even the powers of hell can separate us from God's love. In this powerful passage, Paul supplies us with a helpful word to cling to, convinced. It's the key to being freed from every doubt that comes with a Friday-Saturday setback. Amazingly, the conversation between the men going to Emmaus happened after the resurrection. Even Jesus' triumph over death wasn't enough to bring them back fully from doubt. In Luke 24, 21-23, they admitted, This all happened three days ago. And then some women from our group of his followers were at his tomb early this morning, and they came back with an amazing report. They said his body was missing, and they'd seen angels who told them Jesus is alive. The men must have sounded doubtful about his resurrection, because Jesus rebuked them. You foolish people! You find it so hard to believe all that the prophets wrote in the scriptures. Wasn't it clearly predicted that the Messiah would have to suffer all these things before entering his glory? The message is clear. We can't let our Friday-Saturday setback determine our belief in God's goodness. Yet even when we have lingering doubts, God's grace flows freely to heal us. This happened for the disciple Thomas, who doubted the reports of his closest friends when they told him Jesus was alive. Thomas represents where a lot of devoted believers are today. I'm talking about those who once believed with zeal, who sacrificed to take part in Christ's glorious work, and who rejoiced as they saw God visibly on the move, transforming lives. But then came a Friday-Saturday setback, a lingering trial that dragged on for years. They never stopped going to church and hearing sermons about God's goodness, but something inside them died and now they can't resurrect it. The lingering disappointment of their long, dismal setback has beaten them down too far. Is this you? Jesus wants to come to you just as he did to Thomas. He wants to show you his scars from the worst possible Friday-Saturday setback. He wants the power of his resurrection to raise you to life in a way you could never do for yourself. He wants to convince you of his eternal word to demonstrate through his resurrection that no lie or power can ever derail you from his kingdom purpose. Again, as Romans 8.39 says, No power in the sky above or in the earth below, indeed nothing in all creation, will ever be able to separate us from the love of God that is revealed in Christ Jesus our Lord. Because of Jesus' loving grace, Thomas believed again. History tells us he became one of the most impactful of all the disciples. He took the gospel to India, where he founded influential churches in seven major cities. Today, India has more Christians than any other nation in the world. God won't withhold anything from us when it comes to our belief in him. Jesus withheld nothing from Thomas when his friend needed to believe again. Jesus also calls you his friend, and he has withheld nothing to keep you in his loving favor. As John 15, 15 says, I no longer call you slaves, because a master doesn't confide in his slaves. Now you are my friends, since I have told you everything the Father told me. Let Jesus convince you again. 
He brings resurrection life to you in the midst of your trial. Like Thomas, you'll taste the glory of his favor again, and it will transform you. His overwhelming victory is one more dimension of his amazing favor to you. You've been listening to Chapter 7 of God's Favor, read by Jason Staples. This podcast is brought to you by World Challenge, transforming lives through the message and mission of Jesus Christ. World Challenge is incredibly thankful for the support we receive from many people across the country who believe in our mission. We are able to continue creating resources like this podcast because of donations from listeners like you. You can make a donation at worldchallenge.org. Thank you for listening and supporting. Next week on God's Favor, Gary begins part three of his book, Offering God's Favor to Others. Until then, we hope you're experiencing the life God wants you to have.